In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Hey guys, at what point are you willing to say, this is a hill I will die on? At what point will you throw your stars down as Admiral William Dean Lee says on our podcast this week? It is time for us to rise up, man. It is time for the men of God to stop being silent. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you are gonna love this podcast episode. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Man Arena Army, we salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Man Arena Podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your host of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men and your guide to help you becoming your best version inside the stress bubble and beyond. Hey guys, I want to jump in today to our hero story. This hero story comes from Ben through Instagram, and Ben lives in the state of Southern Illinois. So just like us Oregonians, they have the state of Northern and the state of Southern. So he's from the state of Southern Illinois. He says this, he says, hey, I've been listening to your podcast for almost a year and I love it. You're, this is really cool. Now check this out. He says, your podcast has inspired my dad and I, to start a men's ministry at our church. That is so awesome. He said, these guys have responded in a huge way, and now we're getting guys from other churches to join our community. That is so rad. So thank you so much, Ben, for uh, hitting us up there and uh, sharing that story. That is really, really encouraging, guys. So uh, hey, hey, Ben, make sure you hit us up at info at menandarena.org. Send us your physical address so we can shoot you some swag. And guys, I want to let you know, Man Law Update. So the Man Law book has been written. The rough draft has been sent. And in the next probably two or three months, that's going to be uploaded to our website as a free resource for you. We're going to pull down my book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell the Sons and Daughters. But from now on, we're going to move the Man Law to the end of the podcast because we want to jump right in to our guest for today. Hey, I'm excited, guys, to bring on our show Vice Admiral William Dean Lee. He lives in Richmond, Virginia with his beautiful wife of over 41 years, his first and only wife, Mary. Vice Admiral Lee served nearly 36 years in the Coast Guard along the Atlantic, Pacific, and Gulf Coasts. He concluded his career as commander of the Atlantic area, a force of over 21,000 strong. Since his retirement, Admiral Lee's been serving as Honorary Professor of Military Science and Senior Fellow at the Joint Forces Staff College in Norfolk, Virginia. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, Admiral. How are you doing? I am well. Thank you, sir. I really to... ap I appreciate your haircut. <laughs> it's the best I can do. <laughs> it's the best anyone can do at this point, right? Oh, man. Hey, can you tell, before we get, get you going on the questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? What makes you tick? Things you enjoy? Well, hey, I enjoy life. Uh, <laughs> uh, what makes me tick? I mean, I get out of bed every morning looking for something, uh, something worthwhile to do. I, uh, one day a week, I, I volunteer at the local jail working with 144 heroin addicts and meth addicts. I mean, you take it. 
whatever the drug is, if they're addicted to it, I work with them. And uh, that's kind of my personal ministry. And um, I get a great deal of joy out of that. That's that's my way to continue to serve and, and pay back. Uh, other than that, I'm a, I'm a grandfather of three. And uh, I got two boys, two sons. One works in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. <clears throat> Very proud of him. And the other one works right here in the same county I live in. He's a police officer, so he's a first right. responder also. Over. All right. So you talk. So you talked about going into the prison as your ministry serving addicts. How did that happen? How did that come about? Well, I wish I could say that I had a plan uh, when I retired, but what happened was um, the local sheriff, uh, who is a friend of mine, uh, kept asking me to come up to the jail to see this program he's got going on. He said, hey, I've got this thing going on with a bunch of heroin addicts. And I, I kept kicking the can, trying to find an excuse not to go. And after several months of that, he finally cornered me one day and asked me, all right, what's your excuse today for not going? <laughs> and not having any, I ended up, I found myself in the jail within 45 minutes and pushed out in front of a a whole pod full of people that look like they'd kill you rather as soon as look at you. And I was nervous. I got to tell you, it was a frightening experience for me because I'd never been in a, uh, in a jail before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, worse than that, I had spent 36 years in an organization that chased down drug runners and put handcuffs on them. So my goal was to put them in there. <laughs> um, and, you know, I looked at all of them, through that same lens, you know, that most people do is, you know, you, you get your just desserts and, uh, yeah. uh, I didn't really have any sympathy for them, but, but nevertheless, I'm in there. And after 45, 50 minutes of talking to them, they had hooked my heart and I've been going back every Tuesday morning for the last six years. And what are you um, doing there? I get, I do. I bring the gospel to them, but I also bring friendship and love to them. I mean, I help a lot of them when they get out. I help them find jobs. I help them. I help their families while they're in. Um, sometimes I'll go meet with a child, uh, you know, a wayward teenager whose father's locked up and talk to him or her. And um, It brings me great joy. Uh, here I tell you, the bottom line is this. Going to that jail for the last six years taught me more about the human condition than I learned in the first 62 years of my life. Wow. And the most important thing it taught me was how to not look down my long nose of moral superiority at people who end up in, in a jailhouse or end up addicted because not, some of them never had a chance. I mean, mm -hmm. they were born to addicts and they, they, I mean, how wrong I was to have judged them before I ever knew what kind of paths the, that they had been on to get them in that place over. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes it makes you wonder who's serving who are they there for me or am I there for them? Yeah, that's really good, man. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was, I was doing some research on you and diving deep into the internet and uh, I came across a phrase that I think is your mantra. And it really is appropriate to you going into the prison system. And you, you said earlier, you didn't have a plan after retirement. And I think I would argue, well, you have a mantra that would say it would lead you into the next step. And so tell us about this uh, mantra of yours, serve first, lead second, be humble. <laughs> you found that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So truth be told, um, I got that, you know, every leader has somebody underneath them that'll tell them what they don't want to hear, but what they need to hear, you know, like a Nathan, you know, yeah, every, sure. you know, a, a good King has a Nathan and a good Admiral has the chief petty officer that'll whisper in his ear when he's going down the wrong path. And when I was a young Lieutenant, I was at my first command. I was a greenhorn. I really didn't know what I was doing. I wanted you know, like every new CEO, you want to succeed because you want to get promoted. And I, you know, I was bent on making my unit the cleanest, most, this, you know, the most well manicured Coast Guard station on the East Coast. And 
And one day I got a knock on the door by one of my chief petty officers. And he, uh, he says, Skipper, can I have a word with you? And I go, yeah, come on in. He says, um, you mind if I shut the door? Uh-oh. And I said, sure, shut the door. Now, I'm thinking now this is going to be one of them conversations like good. When they want to shut the door, they got some good juicy dirt on somebody. Yeah. You know, they caught somebody doing something wrong. And I get to now, you know, hold a captain's mash. You know, I hadn't had one of them yet. So I'm kind of rubbing my hands, you know, waiting for this good news. And for the next 40, 50 minutes, this chief petty officer commences to tell me what a sorry commanding officer I am. And he, but he did it respectfully. And basically what he told me was, you know, Skipper, you got your priorities wrong. I realize you want to get this place cleaned up, but you inherited this big giant base that used to be manned by a hundred people. And there's only 32 of us here now. He says, and you've got to make a decision whether you want to have the most immaculately maintained station on the East coast or whether you want to have four boats that run and a crew that's trained to run them, but you can't <laughs> both. There's not enough of us. Basically what he was teaching me was it's mission first mm. mission first. It's not about you and your promotion and your success. It's about the success of the unit. Mm -hmm. And so I went out after that and had me a little plate made up in my mission statement and that stayed on my desk for every one of the other six commands. I got, I retired. I had seven commands total, and that little plaque stayed on my desk. And I, and I saw it every morning because it only faced me. It was a little nameplate. Um, you couldn't see it if you came into the office, but I saw it every morning when I sat down to log on my computer and serve first. It's all about them, not you. And uh, and then you know, leadership comes easy if you're serving first. And that's how that that's a kind of a long-winded story. But that, I hope that answers your question. No, that's, I mean, that's straight out of the Philippians chapter two playbook. So that's really good. And ironically, I don't know if you know this, but Nathan in Hebrew means gift of God. So, uh, you know, sometimes we need those guys. They're a gift because a lot of times we don't see the guys calling us out. So I appreciate that. Well, so, Hey, I, I love this mantra, serve first, lead second, be humble. You know, that kind of a mantra, it makes sense that you'd be in the prison you know, working with and ministering to ministering to guys that you could have arrested on open water. But but I want to move into something that's happened in recent events surrounding uh, a lot of our heroes in the Coast Guard who refuse to be vaccinated. And you've come under some fire uh, and you've been in the, the news for some of this stuff. Do you want to walk us through what happened and what pulled you and compelled you into that arena? Yeah, sure. So... You know, when I retired, I, I really you know, stepped away from the Coast Guard. I, I wasn't following what they were doing. I didn't. I don't even read the retired newsletter. I mean, it's not that I'm not interested. It's just that I had my turn. It's now their turn. Yep. Um, and so if, if some Coast Guard issue comes to me, it's because somebody takes it and throws it in my lap mm -hmm. um, and asks me my opinion about it. But um, on September 11th of all days, uh, it was a Sunday. Uh, I had just gotten home from church and I get a call from an attorney that's representing seven Coast Guard cadets who just got expelled from the academy for not taking the vaccine. And he, he, he called me up and he's really what he was looking for was he was trying to find a way to get to Coast Guard leadership. And he'd seen my name on one of those, uh, I think at the Family Research Council. Uh, led by Tony Perkins, conservative site where mm -hmm. I had, you know, there's a bunch of generals and admirals that sign up supporting that cause. And, and he, I think he was just searching for a Coast Guard officer on there that he would, he thought would be like-minded. And so I'm it. And so he asked me if I could do anything to get leadership to, to undischarge or unexpel those cadets and bring them back to the academy. Uh, and I said, well, what are the other service academies doing? And he says, well, that's the kit. That's the point. The West Point um, and Annapolis have an injunction on them. They're not they're not expelling their cadets. They're letting their unvaxxed ones stay in school right now. And this looks bad on the Coast Guard. And I, so I go, 
Well, let me see what I can do. So I tried to contact the commandant. I sent a private email. And after seven days, after not getting an answer, I sent a second private email to the chief of personnel and copied the chief of public affairs and, uh, um, and another admiral. And I got an acknowledgement that they had received it, but it was just an acknowledgement. Thank you for the note, but they're not going to answer it. We're not doing anything basically is the, what, what happened. And so I decided after that, after finding out that, that, almost all of the 1,235 people who had requested religious accommodations had been denied them, except for 12 people who were retiring. That became an issue for me. Yeah. Um, because that's a first amendment issue. And after all, we officers are sworn to protect and defend that constitution. And, uh, you know, against foreign and domestic, and this is a domestic issue. And so I took it on. And I got in the news. I wrote that open letter to the flag corps. And then I found out who my friends are and who my friends aren't. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of here where we are right now. Oh, yeah. Now, by flag corps, we're talking about uh, off people that have reached the rank of admiral. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So I okay. was talking to all of the admirals, active duty and retired via social media and i don't know how many of them obviously i don't have the addresses all in people so the only way you can post a letter to get to them is social media and it believe me it got passed around i think most all of them were aware of it so what what are some repercussions you've seen you find out who you who are friends and who are acquaintances um i got one ally that comes out publicly on it um rear admiral pete brown um, who was a former seventh district commander. He, he teamed up with me. And, and so we've been trying to educate those that we think need to be educated on, on the issues associated with this from our standpoint. Uh, we're not making any headway on it, but there's a lot of lawyers involved representing a number of service members from all of the services. And what we're hoping to do is get an injunction placed on our formal service in the same fashion that the Navy and Marine Corps has one on them. So that just long enough to they work this stuff out in the courts, because there's so many questions swirling around about the legality of the mandate itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and there's a lot of questions about the processing of these religious accommodations, because it looks to me like a blanket denial. And had they, had they been able to prove that they'd at least approved 20, 30% of them, at least some of them, I wouldn't be making any noise. Yeah. But you can't just deny them all. And, and let me make this point. I'm not anti-vax. I took the vaccine and I took the booster. And I, I also advised officers and enlisted who, who came to me asking my opinion about it even though I was retired during the height of the pandemic. And I said, Hey, look, uh, not for nothing, but I advise you to take it. Uh, I don't want to get that stuff. Um, but now in hindsight, looking at what we know now scientifically, that it doesn't prevent the act, you know, the, 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 the acquisition of the disease nor the spread of it, uh, and all of the associated health effects that uh, young men and women are having, I say, we have a duty of care to kind of pause. Mm -hmm. Let's reevaluate this because what initially looked like a good idea is now looking more and more like a horrible idea. Yep. And it is by discharging all of these folks, it's draining readiness out of our service when we can't find enough people to recruit to fill the vacated spots. It just makes no business sense to continue down this path over. Well, you know, it's interesting. So I'm not vaccinated. My family, none of us are vaccinated, but if somebody wants to get vaccinated, that's on them. We don't care. This is not a, a show about vaccination. This is not a show about uh, politics. This is a show about something deeper, but I, we have to start there because that's the start of this narrative that you're going through right now. I really appreciate your open letter and I really appreciate your service. We give our resources away 
uh, to any active military of the five branches, police or fire department as well. So really do appreciate your service. And your letter was beautiful. It was very well written. And you said part of what you said was this. And I want to highlight this. You said, when we're getting rid of the very people who are so convicted, they're willing to give up their jobs. And I'm talking about lifelong pensions. They're willing to walk away from that rather than turn their back on their religious convictions. These are the kind of people we want to keep in the military, yet we're purging them. So I really appreciate that. So your letter, uh, you hinted at it earlier. It seems like there's something going on that's beyond uh, vax, no vax, right wing, left wing. It seems to be something going on with Christianity itself. Is that what you're saying? Well, look, let me make this point. I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Never have (laughs) been. All right. Uh, It, it, and it's easy to, to go down that road. I don't believe there's a conspiracy here, but I will tell you this. I cannot answer the logic behind continuing down this path that they're on it, it doesn't make any sense to me yeah zero sense they're backing off on the mandate and other elements of the federal government new york city has backed off on it and they're reinstating the people that they had fired oh wow uh, and, and why the military wants to continue this purge when we are already so weak and we're back our backs are against the wall with uh with recruiting and retention it, it just seems like there's a hidden agenda here, but I won't dare try to guess what it is. But I'm telling you, the people that have come out, reached out to me and Admiral Brown from my former service, thanking us for trying to save their careers. These are some righteous people. Mm. These are good, God-fearing citizens who signed up to serve their country. And now we're turning our back on him. And not just that, we're, we're treating them like lepers. Mm. Some of the stories would break your heart. Uh, well, and I'm, I'm appalled. Well, and you go back to your original seven cadets. It wasn't like these were five white dudes. This is a very, di- right. very diverse group of cadets, correct? <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, all of the services are running around right now. You know, they're beating themselves on the chest and doing high fives with each other uh, over, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yet all five of the seven of these cadets were members of minority groups. Five of them were members of, of color, either Hispanic or black. And two of them were uh, Caucasian females. There wasn't a white male in the group. These <laughs> wow. are the kind of folks we're trying to recruit and retain. Yes. And we're flooding them right out of the system over a shot that we now know makes no difference. Yeah, I hear you. Well, you've mentioned a couple times, Admiral, you've mentioned the word purge, but there's, a, there's another word that you didn't mention that's in your letter. And I want to address that other word. You said in your open letter to the flag, uh, flag Corps, what I believe we're seeing here is an ideological purge. This is just one way to get rid of people with ideologies that don't match our current culture. We need people to have their moral compasses set right. So can you explain the, the phrase ideological purge? What does that mean to you? God-fearing men and women who have the conviction to stand on their, their faith over, over what I believe now is an illegal order. Um, and these are the kind of people, look, so that begs a question. A lot of people have asked me this, you know, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing people say you're in the military, take the shot, just take <laughs> the shot. Um, yeah, I've heard that. And that was my view of it in the beginning. But when you find out that the shot wasn't, wasn't administered in accordance with the law, yeah, they're not really, in my mind, and in the opinion of the lawyers who are representing those members, um, they're not really violating a legal order, all right, to begin with. And 
And so, but who am I? Even though as a Christian, I could find no religious reason as a, you know, as a Baptist to not take the shot. That doesn't mean that that I can be the arbiter of what another man or woman's faith tells them to do. Your conscience, your spirit can 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 tell can tell you whether you ought or ought not to take a particular uh, form of medication. And and so how do you measure, you know, so they when they were adjudicating these requests and their appeals, uh, and they were just blanketly denying them all. You know, it begs the question, well, how do you measure a man's faith? Mm. Uh, I mean, really, I mean, is it by how many times he went to church or Sunday school or how much money he put in the collection plate on Sunday? I mean, that's not the way you measure it. I'll tell you how I think you measure it. You, You measure a person's faith by what they're willing to give up. All right. And these people, many of them are walking away. You know, they got 18, 19 years of service and they're willing to walk away from a lifelong pension and all of the perks that go so that go along with that. Now that that is saying something right there. And, and if nobody else gets an accommodation, I submit that those people deserve it. And that's why I'm fighting for this. I mean, that's just this is just wrong. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting, Admiral. I'm rereading a book I read for seminary years ago called Church History in Plain Language. And in that book, uh, they talk about the, the spread, the explosive growth of Christianity in the first century after Christ's death. And it was really interesting that the author of the book, his la- I think it's his last name was Shelley. I can't remember his first name at this point. He said the one thing that Christians had that was very rare and the reason why they were being killed and martyred was one word. They were stubborn. They absolutely refused to compromise. And it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was an ideological purge because of this unwillingness to compromise. And so, you know, I, I, the vaccine, no vaccine, you know, these things are, are issues, but, you know, as I look at the men of the United States and the 125 other nations that download this podcast, I think, man, we have to look at North Korea, China, you know, these places where Christianity has been, you know, rendered illegal unless you're practicing uh, according to state religion and just wonder, you know, man, are we heading that way? Do you see this ideological purge as a hint of what's to come in the future for Christianity in America? Well, yeah, kind of, I do. Let me go back. So I went into, I got commissioned in 1981. When I was commissioned, um, you could openly talk about your faith. I mean, there was no question about, I mean, you could have a Bible on your desk. It, it, nobody found it offensive. And you have your backup 40 years before that, when my father was in, the, in World War II, uh, Eisenhower, the president, where they were giving Bibles to every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine that was going overseas. They were giving them out. Mm-hmm. Now look where we are. We don't, we don't, not only don't we do that anymore, you don't, they don't even want you talking about it in the workplace because you're afraid you offend somebody. Yet with this new, I guess there, there's a, I think the state has adopted a new religion. And I call it the Church of Wokeology. And 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 you better you had better worship at its altar, or you will be persecuted. And I'm not saying that, in, you know, in just just it's 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 almost that bad. And so the it, the ones that are most likely to push back against it are probably going to be those people of of the Judeo Christian faith. All right, the ones that don't buy the celebration of what the Bible says is sin. All right, and I'll stop at that. Over. Well, no, I don't want to stop at that. I was hoping we were going to get to that <laughs> because right, I've, I've been saying, so it's really important for men. This podcast is men who are calling themselves Christians. They are 30 to 55 years old with kids in the home, mostly. And uh, I've been speaking to these guys like, guys, we've got to get ready for the coming persecution 
And it's been probably happening since 1981. And you call it the Church of Wokeology. I call it critical theory or social justice. And it's the same exact thing as you're saying. And I think that our guys have to educate themselves and realize, you know, I've had to post a video recently and telling Christian men to stop calling their wives their partner. Because the woke movement, the critical theory movement will say a partner is somebody that can be a homosexual relationship. A partner can be a monogamous sexual relationship with heterosexual. It can be a cohabitating committed relationship, but a marriage is different and transcends all of them because that is under covenant that God honors. And so we're, and so what's happened is this uh, wokeology church, as you call it, has come in with its terms. And so now that we've identified it as a religion, I call it a religion. We can say to people, I don't use the phrase white privilege. I don't use the phrase, um, I don't use these phrases because this is an ideology that is antithetical to my personal faith in Jesus. Does that, does that resonate with you? Absolutely, especially that last point. Antithetical to what Jesus teaches because it's divisive. And yes. that's my problem. And, and, and the, the issue here with, with men and women in the workplace, particularly in the federal government, is you don't dare raise the issue in the workplace or you're labeled a bigot or a hater. And I, and I, that, it, that is, it's so hard to deal with that when they're rubbing it in your face. I'll give yes. you a great example. Um, I saw a photograph of, um, of the Coast Guard. They had a cake made at the ball and it had the Coast Guard symbol on it and all that, but they had the gay pride symbol on it. Now, I don't, I don't begrudge gay people from having their symbols. I have exactly. many, I have many, many gay friends. All right, yes. there. I, I, I mean, their sin is no worse than my sin or your sin. Agreed. But I don't celebrate those things that I know are sinful, and I don't want anybody else to force me to compel me to use speech that is not in line with what I know to be the truth, nor to celebrate something that the Bible says ought not to take place, if that makes any sense. Well, it, it does. Yeah. It, it, the, the thing that I think of when I hear you say that is, so you want to put a rainbow flag symbol on a, uh, a, a military cake. What that right. says, it goes back to the very definition. If you just look up the definition of social justice, which is critical theory, which is wokeism, if you look up the right. definition, it basically, it says, it is the distribution of wealth, privileges, and resources to the oppressed. And so it's, a, it, you know, we're, as a Christian man, I believe in James chapter 2 that we are all equal. Show no favoritism. That's when an aberral can go into a prison with a bunch of uh, heroin and, and meth addicts and function on the same level because the admiral loves Jesus. But equity says something different. Equity says you owe these, you owe me something for this. And, and that's where we're struggling, right? Because we don't want to say get the rainbow off the cake because it makes it sound like we're not being, uh, we're not loving them. But what we're really saying is, no, we believe in equality, not equity. Equity is not a biblical principle. Right. Well, it's even, it's even more complicated than that, though. Or yeah, I agree. Than that. So, but, so I'll give you an example. So I was born and raised in Virginia, and I'm a lead. Uh, now I'm not, I'm ah. not, say, I'm not saying that I'm a, uh, you know, a descendant of, of Robert E. Lee, but I am a Lee from Virginia. That much is true. But ever since I was a man, a young man in college, you know, growing up in the South, like I did, you know, you, they was used to see the stars and bars, the Confederate flag, the, you know, it was yep. the battle flag of the army North. That, that was a symbol that a lot of men, would fly and, and, you know, they put the stickers on the back of their pickup trucks and whatnot. But I have to tell you that always bothered me because to me, 
that Confederate flag was was represented symbols of uh, of hatred. Uh, it, yeah. For example, the Ku Klux Klan. When I saw that flag, I see the Klan, and the Klan to me is is a a, a group of men that that are bigots. Yes. And so, as a Christian, I want to love my brothers and sisters of color, and yep. so I wouldn't I wouldn't have anything to do with that flag. And I used to tell my crew members, you know, you really need to think about that. Yeah, I know it's your right to have it, but do you really want to offend your brother or sister that you might expect to help save you when you get washed overboard tonight on that search and rescue case? And I talked a lot of them out of taking those symbols down and putting them away. Well, that same symbology is also important to me. There's certain symbols that could, that are offensive to Christians. Yes, for sure. So why do we, why do you want, why would anybody want to put, put them in your face? rub them in your face. Let's take all symbols that might be offensive to anybody, any identity group, and let's out, let's, let's, let's set them aside, put them on the back burner. Don't bring them to work with you. Let's make it, you want to talk about equity, make it equal for all, but they've raised certain symbols up and make them more important than others, no matter who it offends. And so that's kind of where I've got a problem with critical theories is because it is absolutely dividing us yes. rather than unifying us. And we need unity, not division. I agree hundred percent because it's love. That's going to win people, not, um, not showing favoritism, not equity. You're absolutely right. I, I really appreciate this. So one of the things I've been pondering in the last several years well, I've been in ministry for 32 years full time. So I've seen the trans I've seen this transition and I, I'm at a point now I'm going, okay, this is getting pretty serious. You know, th there are some serious things going on here where people are actually like, I'm feeling and seeing a direct attack against Christianity. But then I go back to the Bible and I realize in second Timothy three 12, it says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So there's a tension now, right? I, I recognize that to live a godly life, I, I've got to do something to be persecuted. So in this case, it's these Christian men and women who are saying, I'm not going to get vaccinated. So they're making a, a statement for their faith. And I'm wondering if we've just right. gone so silent as a church that we're finally, be, we're finally given an opportunity to be vocal about our faith, and it comes in the form of persecution. Yeah, well, here's my, my take on all of that is, the church is still not very vocal. Agreed. You got pockets here and there, but the church kind of rolls over and plays passive too, far too often. Yep. Um, that's not the, 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 the church of Peter and Paul. <laughs> Those guys were fighters. Yep. And we need, we need less passive and more, more aggressive in terms of standing up for your faith and your rights. And that, but, and I don't want anybody to misinterpret aggressive. That's what I mean by it. just stand up for your rights. That don't mean, you know, take to violence, just stand up and don't, and, and, and don't let them back you in a corner because those with the, the, the loudest voices always seem to win. Yep. And we're losing right now. Well, and I think we have a lot of guys in our podcast right now that are uh, dads with kids in the home. And we're saying, right. hey, what I hear you saying is, hey, dad, teach your children that when they go to school and they're told to offer up a pronoun that they say, well, I feel like a machine gun today. That's what my son did at his college. Or, the, or they don't buy into that. You know, we have to teach our children more than ever to love everybody, but not buy into it. And you talked about Peter. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter 3.17, it's better if God wills it that you should suffer for doing good rather than doing what is wrong. And so I think it's time. That's when I, when I, when I, when, when your name was recommended to me, I was so excited because you're in the middle of getting hammered because of what you believe, even though it's indirect. And I think men need to understand that this, this persecution is coming and we're going to find out who the true, true believers are by those who are willing to be stubborn and stand for their convictions. So how does the church, Admiral, how does the church 
speak up. You said the church has been silent, and I agree. The church has been passive, and I agree. What are some things that we can do now as men of God to stand up for what we believe in this country? I don't know if you're familiar with John Stone Street or not, but he does a daily podcast, and um, I'm a big fan of his. And, and he did a segment one day. It's called the, uh, the Gospel of Getting Fired. Ha <laughs> ha, yes. The Gospel of Getting Fired. And, and, and so it, it, in a short version of that is we need to be willing to, to put our jobs on the line in order to stand our ground against some of this persecution, when you're mm -hmm. being told you have to do something or you have to say something that goes against the tenets of your faith and your belief. Um, one time, when, you know, when I was in, uh, still on active duty, there's this course that the Joint Chiefs sponsor, it's called Pinnacle. And the only men and women that get to go to Pinnacle are those that have been selected for a third star. So I was privileged. I got to go to that course. There's only a small number of people in the class. I mean, in my class, it was only seven or eight of us, as I recollect. And they bring in some of the, you know, brightest and most powerful people in the federal government to come talk about various issues during that course of instruction. And I'll never forget they had sent this one guy down from the White House, and he was on the National Security Staff, and he was a retired Army three-star. But he's now serving in a civilian capacity. But he was dispatched down to talk to us about that delicate dance that uh, senior military officers have to do with their civilian elected and appointed overseers. You know, the, the commander-in-chief and the SECDEF and, the, and their appointees. And, you know, we talked about a number of people who'd gotten crossways with the commander in chief, gotten themselves fired, like Douglas MacArthur and Stan McChrystal and, and various and sundry other ones. But then at the end of the conversation, he turned to all of us and he looked at us and he said something that I'll never forget because I think it was the most important part uh, of the entire course. It may have been the most important thing anybody said to me at any executive course I'd ever been to. He said wow. this. He said, you guys, you guys need to be thinking about what issue or what principle you'd be willing to throw your stars on the table for, because it just might come to that. And what I'm saying is we need some people throwing their stars on the table right now. And I don't see anybody doing it. All right. I would be throwing my stars on the table over this purging of this vaccine mandate, given the process that they used to adjudicate the religious accommodations, because mm. it was a process foul. And yes. I think they're going to find out, and I think it's going to be ruled just that in a court of law, if justice is served. Now we could, we might have a guy driving going, well, yeah, that's easy to say the Admiral when you're retired, but isn't it true that you actually did get fired from a contract because of your stance? Look, I'm not going to go there. Okay. I lost, I lost a, uh, I've been consulting for one of the three letter agencies. I won't name them because I don't want to draw any more fire onto my position. But um, uh, after I wrote that letter and, and got a splash in the news media, um, it just so happened that I was the only guy not brought back on the same consulting team when we got the contract extended. So it's interesting. So Admiral, when we launched uh, men in the arena in 2012, I was uh, scared to death because I just knew that the worst was going to happen. We were in a small little town in suburban or rural Oregon in a, in a, a, a decent sized church for our little town. But man, I just knew, I knew it. We we're going to lose our house. And three months later, the house went into foreclosure. Uh, God redeemed it. But, but I, I thought about this. So I took a risk for God. And the worst thing that could happen was I could lose my house. So 
you may be a high school teacher and the worst thing that can happen for stand up your faith is you could get fired. But think about this. If, if you defend the gospel and get fired over it, isn't God going to take care of you ultimately? I, I, th- I wonder sometimes, Admiral, if, if we just don't trust God. And so we don't have courage to stand up for what we believe in because we really, at the core, don't really trust God to take care of us. What are your thoughts? Hey, look, I can tell you from personal experience that um, that the devil works on you. Oh, yeah. These, when, when, you talk, when you take a stance for your faith, he will throw all kinds of problems your way. I, you know, the old saying, you never know, you don't ever realize the value of something until you no longer have it. Yes. All right. And, and I never realized the value of the, all the friendships that I had in my 36 years. I mean, I truly valued them. I mean, my, I loved my organization still do. I love the, the mission. I love the people I served with. Yet I find myself on opposite sides of an ideological fence right now. Mm. And it hurts to have lost so many of those acquaintances. And it bothered me so much that I was, I was deep. I would, I didn't realize it at the time, but I would just say I was depressed. Uh, yeah. For, the last four weeks or so, but I'm kind of on the other side of it now. Um, that you know, the old saying, "The silence is deafening." Well, it's it's been deafening around here, but I sleep well knowing that I have tried my best and I'm continually trying to turn this thing around. I haven't given up this fight. I'm not gaining any ground but I haven't lost any and I'm keeping the pressure on. I'm writing op-eds. I'm doing the occasional news interview. Um, we've got a lawyer now that is willing to take on uh, as clients, a number of these coast guard officers and enlisted who are being thrown out. Um, the any, the, you know, the non-vaxxers over religious accommodations. And I'm hoping that we can, if we can just get a pause in the action while the courts work this stuff out, I will feel that I have served my cause, my purpose. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, talking to you today has been so encouraging. And, you know, I, I've got a book coming out. It's right there coming out probably in the next couple months called Guts and Manhood. And it's a study of every time the word courage is mentioned in the Bible. And it was a 20-year study of mine. And I determined four irrefutable attributes of courage. Courage is a call to action. In the Bible, it's a personal choice, it's a sign of strength, and it's ultimately a characteristic over time. But the key is there's a call to act, there's a choice that we have to make when we're called to action. And that call to action may be get vaccinated if it stands against what you believe, or you know, your child is your child is being forced to do something at school that is antithetical to what you believe. And so there's a choice that men we have to make to either be vocal or to be silent. And so I just want to say thank you uh, for your courage and service, even after so service never goes away, right? So I do appreciate uh, this conversation today and all that you have to offer and bring to the table. It has been my absolute pleasure, my friend, and I hope our paths will cross in person one day. Yeah, I do too. I, I have some connections out in Virginia and I've got some speaking stuff going on out there. So it'd be fun to connect. You know, I was thinking about this this morning as you came on. You know, people, I don't know if people realize this. My wife and I went to Greece for our 30th anniversary, and we saw a church that Helen, uh, Helen Constantine's mother uh, built. The church is ancient. Well, Constantine in the 300s, he ruled from, he ruled Rome from 306 to 337 AD as an emperor. He became a Christian, and he made Christianity the legal religion of the state of Rome and it ruined Christianity. In fact, Wikipedia says it was a pivot point into the dark ages. And I thought, you know what? We, we fight so hard to make Christianity easy. And we finally have an opportunity, Admiral, at, the, you know, at, at this point of our lives to, to deal with uh, Christianity in a place that's hostile, finally. And I think we're going to see some explosive growth in the church 
as men of faith stand up and and choose courage and choose to be vocal, get inspired by your podcast and say, man, I've got to stand up for my kid at school or, or my kid's sports team or, or this or that, or at work. And maybe we're going to get guys right in telling us they got fired for the glory of God. Well, if I could give those men out there any advice at all, it would be this, especially you, you guys who have children. Go to the school board meetings. Make noise. Keep them in check. Because if you don't, nobody else will. And we don't want anybody else training our children in this false ideology that divides people. We want the opposite. We want Christian values taught, love thy neighbor. Yep. Don't divide thyself from thy neighbor. So well, I God bless you, good friend. I appreciate what you do. And it's been a true honor. Well, in every, every podcast episode, sir, we do a boots on the ground. I think you just gave it to us, which is guys get involved in your kids, school, school board meetings, PTA, uh, the Christian men and their families should rule the schools. So guys, we commission you and empower you. You heard it straight from the Admiral, throwing all three stars at you. <laughs> Get on it, guys. There you go. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show, Admiral. Sure appreciate you. Likewise, my friend. God bless. You we'll too. See you. you too. Oh. All right. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for waiting to the very end to listen to this week's Man Law. Remember, our Man Laws are supplied by you, our heroes. And whenever we use your Man Law, we'll shoot you some swag when you send us your physical address. So this Man Law is from a fr- my friend, Jay Penton. So Jay is the guy who's in charge of the uh, Men in the Arena Facebook forum with 13,000 guys. Uh, Jay's a retired state trooper from the great state of Alabama. And Jay says this, men only shave their face and their head. And I thought in parentheses, unless it's for an athletic thing, like we used to have to shave our ankles for football or like bikers sometimes do that. But Jay says, hey, this is it. So the life rule, I'm going to add a life rule to each of these man laws because in the book, Man Laws, 100 Ways to Have Your Man Card Revoked and Rules to Live By, I offer up a man law. So I offer up a life rule. So here's the life rule for the man law. Men only shave their face and head. Life rule, be comfortable in your own skin, literally. So, hey guys, in the meantime, while we're waiting to get the Man Law uh, booklet up to our website, head on over to manandarena.org, grab your free copy of my book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters. That book is going to come down here in the next month or so, so grab it while it is available. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor, hear the deafening roar of the crowd, taste the sweetness of victory, smell the stench of battle, get in the game, get dirty, grind it out, and be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.